Psalm 14. James Boyce and his commentary titles each of his psalms. He gives it his own title. He called this one the Ship of Fools because um, it's about a fool and a fool that lives in a world where we're all fools. And so he said this is not only what it's like to what a fool is, but what it's like to live in a foolish world. The um, five big ideas, really, through this psalm. The, the first verse is going to tell us what a fool is. What is the heart of foolishness? What, what makes us foolish in, at its core? Second is, uh, it's going to say, not only are there some people who are fools, we're all fools. It's a universal truth that we are foolish. It's going to tell us how to spot a fool, right? How do you tell? What does a foolish person do? How can I tell if they're foolish? What are the consequences of foolishness? And then the last thing we'll see is, is there any hope for a fool? What do you, where's the hope when you live in a ship of fools? Um, I kind of like James Boyce's title, um, but if it's, if it's a little too cute, a ship of fools, you can just call this the heart of a fool. That's what this psalm is all about. Before we read it together, I want to point out just a couple of things. If you remember a few weeks back, I don't know how long, uh, we went through Psalm 1 and then Psalm 2. And I told you that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are an introduction to all the psalms. And that every time we read a psalm, we read it in light of those first two because they were telling us what the whole Psalter is about. So Psalm 1 is about the blessed man, right? Blessed is the man. The fool is the opposite of the blessed man, right? So today we're going to look at kind of the mirror image, the... Um, like the wonder, the Alice in Wonderland, the bizarro world version of the blessing. This is the, this is the world you don't want to be in. Uh, Psalm 2 talks about the nations that rage. That's what the fools are. They're the nations that rage against the sun, right? They're raging against this king who's going to come. The cool thing about the end of Psalm 14 is that the one that we're raging against is also the one who was sent to save us against our, from our own raging, right? That's the, the ending is a, is a cool thing. Let me give you one other little point of introduction. This is fascinating to me. Psalm 14, if you, if you want to hold a thumb there and if you just want to flip back to Psalm 53, you'll realize these are identical. I never realized this until studying for this, that there are two Psalms that are almost identical with one difference one is the numbering in Psalm 14, five and six are two different verses, and Psalm 53 is just five. I don't know. I don't, that's not even part of the original manuscript, but just I don't know why the numbering people decide to make this two verses in 14 and one verse in 53. But also the wording is a little bit different. In Psalm 5 versus uh, Psalm 14, five and six are slightly different wording than. Verse uh, 53, 5, but otherwise identical, which I thought, I don't know that there's another place where you have identical chapters or psalms in the Bible. Uh, if there are, I, mean, I didn't know this one, so I'm not acting like I have full knowledge here, but that caught me off guard. Not only is it repeated 
twice in the Psalter, you'll notice we just studied this in Romans, right? As we read through this, didn't, didn't we just read this a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning? We did. And there's a lesson. When, when something is repeated over and over, right, it's, all of the Bible is important. But there's something about the use of repetition that it's kind of like saying, pay special attention here. Right? Pay a lot of attention because I'm, re- I'm giving you this same psalm twice. You only have 150 of them, which seems like a lot, but considering this is all of the Word of God fits in this book, the idea that he would use this twice to teach us about foolishness means it's pretty important. And the fact that Paul would say, when I have to teach you what it's like to be in rebellion against God, I'm going to quote this psalm. This tells you this is pretty important. So with that said, I'd like you to stand with me just in honor of reading God's word. And I'm going to read, even though it's almost identical, I'm just going to read it out of 14. The superscript says, To the choir master, it's a psalm of David, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Uh, There is none who do good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just ask that you teach us uh, about the fool. You save us from our own foolishness. And you equip us to live a life of wisdom a life that will be blessed as opposed to a life of foolishness. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm not going to spend any time on this superscript. It is so short. It says, choir master, just know here that this is from David. It was written by David. Um, Verse 1. There's just one big point I want to make about verse 1, and that is that foolishness at its heart, or at its core, is a heart issue, right? Foolishness at its core is an issue that is in our hearts. It, I point that out because I think of foolishness and I think mind, right? When you think of a fool, you think of somebody who doesn't have it all upstairs, right? That's, but this is not, he's not talking about it having it all up here. He's talking about it not being right here. Right? Foolishness is a problem with our hearts. Um, foolishness is when we say something in our hearts. Let me read James Boyce. I think he can make this helpful here. There's an interesting problem with the translation that happens. James Boyce will explain. He says, our text quotes him, the psalmist, as saying, or really the fool as saying, there is no God. But we should note that in Hebrew, the text, the words there is, are not present. 
They have been added to the English to make the psalm read smoothly. The fool actually just says, no God. That is, no God for me. So his is a practical as well as a theoretical atheism. Not only does he claim not to believe in God, he also acts on his conviction. What James Boyce is pointing out is that when the text here in Psalm 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, could just as well, and I think perhaps should be, the fool says in his heart, no God for me. I don't want a God. I don't need a God. I want to be my own man. Right? The foolish person is a person who denies the authority and the right of lordship of God in his own life. The guy says, I don't need God. What a fool. What a fool to say that. Now, I told you that I think that atheism, that this denial is primarily a heart issue. I do want to do a little bit of work here because in our culture, it seems like atheism is a head issue, right? Especially if you're familiar with guys like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the Discovery Channel, right? These are places that try to act like, oh, this is a, this, brainiacs believe in atheism, right? Uh, Psalm 14 seems to be telling us, no, atheism, the belief that there is no God, starts in our hearts. It's a denial of God that starts because we don't want a God. This first, I don't know if it was the first time I heard, but convincingly was taught to me by our seminary president, Danny Aiken. I want to read to you some of what he said. Danny Aiken basically List, he gave a talk on this particular psalm, and he introduced it with this huge, long list of famous atheists and was reading all the reasons why they said we don't believe in God in their arguments and trying to show that these guys try to sound like they're coming from an intellectual point of view. And he says the same thing I'm telling you and the same thing Psalm 14 says is that if we look deeply, we'll recognize that it doesn't start from an intellectual view. It started at its root. It was a heart view. This is what he says. He says, now to be sure these men, referring to these famous atheists, are passionate in their beliefs. They're dogmatic in their convictions. They're rock solid in their commitment. Yet, one wonders, did they truly arrive where they are today by pure reason, clear and distinct rational processes? If you will press just a little further, dig beneath the surface of the affirmations of these priests and prophets of the godless world, you will find honest admissions of the emotion and the heart that is fueling the engine of the atheistic agenda. Right? What he's saying is the reason that people become atheists is because our heart longs to say, no God for me. Right? He goes on to quote many of these same guys that he quoted for their atheistic claims to show how he can see the heart there. I just want to do one. For time's sake, I want to read to you a quote from a guy named Atlas Huxley. He's the guy that wrote a book. He's famous for A Brave New World. This comes from a different book, but he's reflecting on his own atheism. He says this. He said, I have motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Right? He says, I believe in a this is all accident. This is a meaningless existence. We're all here without purpose or cause. He says, I have motives for wanting the world to be this way. He says, consequently, because I had those motives, I assumed that it had none. And I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. 
For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. So the liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. Because we objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedoms. Right? So he's, this is famous, uh, famous atheist, Atlas Huxley. Why, what caused you to pursue your belief in atheism? And he says flat out, I wanted to be free. I did not believe that I could maintain a belief in a purposeful creator and pursue my sexual desires without any repercussion. So I wanted, I had a motive to get rid of a God who would hold me under his control. And that's why I pursued atheism on a rational level, right? But it is driven just like Psalm 14 says, from the heart that says, not, no God for me. I do not want an authority over me. I want to be my own man. This is what Psalm 14, Psalm 53 says. This is the heart of foolishness. Foolishness arrives, begins, originates, is based on this idea that I don't need God. I don't want God. I can do it my own way. This is the heart of a fool. We're reading on or doing a study on Wednesday nights with our 11th grade, 12th grade juniors and seniors on apologetics. And this study is interesting because there's a video series. And in this video series, there's a collection of atheists or at least non-Christians who are discussing their reasoning and why they want to uh, discount Christianity and not believe in the Bible, not believe in God. And, And there's one girl who is really interesting, she believes that she can be an atheist and still be moral. She says, I reject the idea of God because the existence of God is only necessary for morality, and I can be moral without him. So I can do it my own way. And I believe that one of the greatest challenges to Psalm 14, 1, is the second half, that many people are just like her and would say, I can do it my own way, but they won't agree that they are corrupt, doing abominable, sounds like I'm saying the snowman, abominable, I think that's right, (laughs) doing abominable deeds, I'm going to have to just paraphrase that for the rest of time or I'll see a big white bear thing. She doesn't want to believe that she does no good, right? And it's hard for us because Atheists in our world say, well, of course I do good. People who are saying, I can live my life without God, do not own up to the claim that I am wicked in all my ways, that there is no good in me. How can we explain this? And I think at the heart, there's, a, there's something that this girl and all of our culture has to recognize, that God's view of good and hers are radically different. Especially because she, what she doesn't realize is that all of her efforts to do good are, in fact, proving how far from good she really is. Let me explain why I believe this. Every time this girl says, I can do good without God, she is committing an act of treason. 
right? Every time she says, I can do good without God, she's saying, I do not need God in my life, and every effort I make to be good without him is proof, is my evidence that he's irrelevant. Every time I help an old lady across the street, every time I don't cheat in my taxes, I prove that God is meaningless in my life and should be in all of our lives. In fact, every time she tries to do good on her own, she proves the depth of her rebellion against God. That's why Paul says, all of my good deeds are like filthy rags. They are not evidence of my goodness. They are evidence of the depth of my rebellion against the only one who is good. God says, I look at what you're doing, and you say it's good, but it's not. It's wicked. It's an act of treason. It's an act of war against me. As you try to show yourself good without any reflection of my goodness as the standard and the basis and the driving force of your goodness. To try to be good without God is treasonous. That is why it is foolishness. For us to say, for me, I don't need God. Because once we do that, we don't simply deny his existence. We set ourselves up as his enemies, intent to prove his meaningless and irrelevance in our lives. The first point I just want to express to us is foolishness is a heart issue. It's a heart issue, and the heart of foolishness is a heart that says, I don't need God. I don't want God. I can do fine without him. And when we think of these type of fools, at first we think that's the atheists. We think that's Richard Dawkins, that's Christopher Hitchens, that's half of Hollywood, right? But these are the bad guys. Verses 2 and 3 say, no, you're confused. That's all of us. I thought it was interesting. In 2014, there were two massive surveys that were done of the whole population of America. One was by Pew Research, and the other was, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, the global climate or something like this. But they were asking what our religious views are in America. And these two separate surveys both found that only 3% of Americans claim to be atheist, which I did find surprising because if you watch TV, it would seem like 90% maybe, but only 3% claim to be atheist. God would say, when I looked from heaven, when I did my survey from heaven, I found no one who was seeking after me. Everybody I found were people who said in their heart, for me, no God. The entire population that God surveyed were atheists. Not dogmatically in the way that Richard Hickens are. Not not atheists in the sense that we say there's no God but atheists practically. We live our lives on a day-in and day-out basis as if God is irrelevant. Day-in and day-out, I do not seek God. I do not ask God, how should I spend the money I made this week? I do not ask God, where should I live? What, What should I do with my time? What should my career be? By and large, My life is lived on my terms, and God is an afterthought to this. To which he says, you live your life as a fool. For you, while not dogmatically, you're not trying to prove that God doesn't exist necessarily, 
You live your life in a way that says, for me, no God. I don't need him. I can do fine on my own. Isn't that wild that he says there's nobody, nobody he can find that is actually seeking after God? Everybody he finds, everybody, is doing wickedness. This was the argument of Paul in Romans 3. Remember in Romans 1 it started, he uses this in Romans 3. In Romans 1 he started, let's just look at Gentiles. And he walked through the immense wickedness of Gentiles. And everybody was supposed to read it at the end of Romans 1 and say, well, of course they're wicked. Of course they're wicked. But then in chapter 2, he says, well, now let's look. He said, the, the, they prove that they say in their heart, no God, by their wicked deeds. He says, in chapter 2, let's look at the Jews. They prove that they say there's no God in their heart by their hypocrisy. And in chapter 2, he says, chapter 1, Gentiles, you are atheist, practically speaking. You are in rebellion against God, practically. Jews, chapter 2, you are atheist, practically speaking, because you're hip- hypocritical. Because you say one thing and do another. So chapter 3, he says, let me quote Psalm 14. God did a survey of the whole world, and guess what he found? There are none that are righteous. No, not one. This is the universal condition. This is a huge issue for Christians, especially when we watch the media. And I've, I've made a couple of jabs already about how you watch TV, and it seems like everybody's an atheist. The Bible, Psalm 14, Romans 3, Psalm 53, would say, be careful about pointing your finger. Because practically speaking, you are part of this ship of fools. Practically speaking, your life looks not that different from the lives that you're criticizing. I want to give you an example and and maybe think through a couple more of how I've seen practical atheism lived out in the church. Uh, It was probably over a year ago that I had my first marital counseling issue where there was a troubled marriage. Uh, there was a wife who, they don't go to this church, but a wife who her husband said, he's leaving me. He, he said he's out of here. And I've just begged him, just give counseling one shot. And so I said, well, y'all come on over. He shows up and the first thing he says to me is, I've already made up my mind. There's nothing you can do to change it, but I'm only here to make her happy. I said, well, this is not going to go good. But I asked him, all right, well, first tell me, do you believe in God? And he said, yes, I believe in God. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. He says, but I'm intent on leaving my wife. So I asked, we, what we did is we pulled out just tons of scripture, but I read especially Ephesians 5. I said, what does Ephesians 5 say? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I said, when you sin, does Christ leave you? No, no, Christ doesn't leave me. He looked at Malachi 2. What does God say about divorce? I hate divorce. God hates divorce. So I asked him, does the, what does the Bible say about the decision you're making? Does it approve or disapprove of the decision? He says, well, it disapproves. The Bible clearly says I shouldn't do what I'm doing, but I don't care. He says, I live every day unhappy, and I'm out of here. I don't want to live the rest of my life unhappy. And I, told, I read to him in 1 John. Anyone who claims to have the Son, but does not, uh, or claims to be in the light, but does not walk in the light, he's, he's lying. The truth is not in him. I said, this is, this is practical atheism. 
It's the claim that I believe that God exists, but I in no way will give him any level of lordship over my life. He has no right to tell me to stay in a marriage that I'm not excited to be in. You're, just, you're practically an atheist. What good is it to say, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, but he has no authority over the way I interact in marriage? We're all in this boat. That, to me, was a drastic example. But we do these same examples all the time. Hebrews 10 do not forsake the assembling together is the habit of some. It says, you need to regularly commit yourself to be in church. How many Christians, members of Rayford Road, do not regularly show up? How many of us put our attendance of church as second to our entertainment pursuits? Right? And he said, that's the same mentality that's in an atheist, that God isn't even worthy of weekly attendance. With a body that he died for and loved? You're practically an atheist. You are saying, no, God, I, I trust you in some, but not in this. No, God, for me, when it comes to church attendance. No, God, for me, when it comes to what I watch on my phone or on my TV. Right? I will not cut out any possibility for me to look at pornography even though I know that God says do not let your eyes look lustfully on a woman. If I know that God commands this and I am not willing to do what Romans 5 says, mortifying that sin in my flesh, no God, not for me, not in this way and not in this regard. If I'm a single person and I'm living, I'm sleeping with a person I'm not married to, I know the Bible clearly speaks that I cannot do this. And if I decide to do it anyway, I'm practically an atheist. I'm saying, no, God, you do not have authority in my life in this regard, in this area, in this way. God said, this is utterly foolish. When you say, no, God, you do not have authority in my life, you are the heart. You are demonstrating the heart of foolishness. We're going to find out fully why that is, but right away we're going to find out, even before the, the final reason it's so foolish, we see that it, the, the effect of this, of the heart of foolishness, is wicked behavior. All sorts of wicked behavior, right? We're corrupt. We do these snow monster deeds. <laughs> There's none to do good. But we especially prove it kind of this third point in verse 4, by the way we treat the people of God. First, I just want to point out to you, for me, when I read, have they no knowledge, my mind went immediately to 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. So let me flip there. You may find it interesting to flip there too. 2 Timothy 3. In, verse, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's writing to Timothy about these false teachers that have come in. And he says that these people have the appearance 
of godliness, right? But they deny its power. He says, avoid those people. For among them are those who creep into households and they capture weak women. They they're, themselves are burdened with sins and they are led astray by various passions. And then in verse 7, they're always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And I look back at Psalm 14 and he says, do they not have any knowledge? Do you watch Discovery Channel all day long and listen to NPR and all your friends think you're the smartest guy in the room, but it never leads to godliness? Are you the type of person that seems to know everything, but the outworking of your belief system hurts people, right? Paul said to Timothy, you find weak-willed women and you, you lead them astray, and you yourself can't even stay out of sin. David says that you are eating God's people like we eat bread. You are chewing people up. You are literally destroying people with the way you live. Not only that, you don't even stop and seek God afterwards. It's not like you hurt people and go and repent and say, God, help me from this. You live a life that causes pain and destruction, and you don't even repent for it. This is a sign of the depth of foolishness. The heart that says, I am moral without God, always hurts people. And has no need, no desire to seek any sort of redemption from that. This is, in my mind, clearly the state of our nation right now. I, I, I certainly don't want to get too political, but I can't even read this and not think of the fact that last year we sued the little sisters of the poor, right? The people of God, and we take them to court, right? Uh, this week, Vice President Mike Pence has been clearly attacked and threatened of suit because he won't meet with women other than his wife alone, right? He's trying to protect his marriage, and he's under persecution for that, which seems crazy to me, right? But in pursuit of whatever moral good, we don't understand the amount of attacking that happens to people that are clearly trying to serve God. And... and David says, and Paul says, one clear sign of the foolishness of our generation and the foolishness of our own hearts is that we hurt the people of God and don't even seem to feel guilty about it. Don't even say, God, forgive me, I've hurt a brother or sister. If we are part of the people of God and we don't want to be foolish, we want to live that blessed life, then we want to do the mirror image of this right? It's not simply that I don't want to hurt people. I want to love people, the people of God particularly. This is what Jesus says in John 13. This is how they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. And he's talking about you love the disciples. You love my followers, and that's how people know that you're a disciple. The opposite is true when you don't love the people of God. You hurt them. You eat them like people eat bread. You prove that you are a fool. So I really want our church to be marked by deeply loving each other first. Even before the world. 
right? So this, if any passage speaks against what I see as some of the problems of the seeker-sensitive movement, Psalm 14 does. Because first off, it says the idea that there is a seeker is, out, is wrong. He said, there's none that are seeking God. If, you are do, if your whole church is designed to, to minister to seekers, the problem is, is Psalm 14 says there are none. You're ministering to a group of people that don't exist. So secondly, the way that you show people your love for me is first and foremost by loving the people who I have loved and called my own. Now, I, I don't, don't want you to misunderstand me and say that that means we ignore or act hatefully to those outside of our walls. The, the Bible is clear. We love everyone. We pray for our enemies. We bless those who persecute us. But there is a sort of first and foremost loving the brethren. First and foremost, I show the world that there's something special here by committing myself to this body and to this, the health of my family here. That's why church attendance, not merely for the sake of checking off this box, but for the sake of actually being part of the family, is so radically important. It's interesting, I could never be a missionary by being an atheist, right? I could never be a missionary by somehow disregarding the needs and the, and, and the um, spiritual growth of the body. If I disregard my body for the sake of the world, then I'm proving I'm not even part of this body I'm calling you to. If you want to win the world, do it by loving the church and through the church loving the world. Commit yourself. Commit yourself to these people. Let me move on. There's a fourth movement or fourth kind of point that's going on in here, and that's what we see in verse 5 and 6. If you were reading in Psalm 53, which is identical almost until you get here, it would just be verse 5. Verse 5 and 6 tell us that fools live in great terror. And the reason is that God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the poor, and and the poor seem to be the the generation of the righteous, right? There's There's these people of God. They're the poor. They're the weak in my society, but they're my people. And you would take advantage of them and shame them, but the Lord is protecting them. And that's why there's a terror on you. Psalm 53, I think Psalm 53 is really helpful here. It's the one place where there's a little bit of a diversion, a little bit of different wording here uh, from Psalm 14. But I think the point is the same. And so it's worth kind of reading this. Psalm 53, 5, it says, They are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has, re- uh, for God has rejected them. They are these fools. It says, they are in great terror where there is no terror. Now, I read a couple commentaries that said they are afraid when there's nothing to be afraid of. I think they get this exactly wrong, like complete opposite of what this is saying. Because there is something to be really afraid of. That God is going to scatter the bones of the people who are against his people. You don't care for my body? You don't care for my church? God says, I will judge you. You pick on the poor, what you're about to find out is, I'm their refuge. 
He, he, almost like he's comparing himself to these people, the fools, are like bullies in a playground that are picking on a little kid, and they don't realize that that little kid has a big brother who's in the Marines, and he's about to come whoop up on you. You have something to be afraid of. Big brother's coming. The problem isn't that they don't have anything to be afraid of. The problem is that they're living in fear, unaware that the Marines come into town. He says, you're in terror where there is no terror. You actually are in danger, and you're not even terrified by it. The fool, that's what makes the fool so foolish. It's because we believe that we can live in rebellion to God with immunity. God says, I will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. But the fool says, no, no God for me, and no consequence for me either. I can do whatever I want with immunity. And God says, this is the height of foolishness, because I am a just and holy God, and I will pay your sins back. You should be afraid. Let me just pause before we do the last point and say this not a happy passage so far, <laughs> right? There's a fool, and the fool is a person. The, the heart of foolishness is when we are in rebellion to the authority of God. I don't need God's authority in my life. And the second point is that you should be aware that all of us are fools. Every single one of us in this room and every single one of us on this earth have rebelled against the authority of God. We have said in some way at some time in our life that whatever God says doesn't apply to me in this way at this time. Or perhaps just, I don't care if it applies to me. My happiness trumps God's will in this point. And God says, what you don't seem to realize is that when you act this way, you destroy people. You hurt people. You particularly hurt my body. Outsiders who do it, people who aren't in the body, hurt through persecution of the church. We hurt the body as insiders by shaming the name of God, by causing division within the body. of right? we, we are destroying people when we deny God's authority in our lives. And God says, this is foolishness because it brings destruction. Destruction from me, judgment from me. And so, David says, this is the first time that you see a difference in the way he's talking. Everything else up to this point has been a lesson on foolishness. But in 7, he says, oh, and this is like a prayer from his heart. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We need something. When the Lord, now there's this confidence. He prays it in the first line, God brings salvation. Oh, that this salvation would come. And went now in confidence when the Lord does do what he's promised, when he restores the fortune of his people, we will rejoice and we will be glad. There's a sense, first off, that you can tell he thinks the big brother's showing up. Right? We can live in a world where Bakers may lose their shop, right? And floors may lose their shop, and we don't have to be afraid because our big brother's coming. He's going to set everything right. But there's also a sense here 
where this salvation isn't simply from these outside atheists, right, these outside fools, but it's a salvation for us ourselves. And that's the whole point of Romans, right? Romans 1 through 3 are just point, telling us we're in this boat. And starting in 321 through basically 12, the beginning of 12, he's saying, and here's how you get out of that boat. God is going to send salvation out of Zion. He's going to bring that king in Psalm 2. He's going to bring him, and he's going to make it right. Here's what's fascinating. We, as fools, were in utterly hopeless situations because, first off, we were too foolish to even recognize we were fools. We lived in terror, but were not terrified. Listen, my judgment was looming over you, and you walked about whistling and casually like no big deal. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he compared us to uh, someone dangling a spider over a flame by just just the uh, one little thing of thread or or web. He says, you don't understand the the judgment that is awaiting for you. You're just casual about it. Not only is it true that we were too foolish to see, none of us were even seeking something better. All of our learning was not geared to seeking God. It was geared to showing that we don't need God. Right? The purpose of my, lear- of my learning, naturally speaking, is to glorify myself, to show myself smart, to make my life better, to do something better for me, but never to submit myself to the rule and authority of God. There's nobody who goes about their life to honor God as their authority, not naturally speaking, but their salvation. Because when we don't seek God, he says, I will send someone out of Zion who will go and seek you. I will go to somebody who, I will send my own son to seek you when you wouldn't seek me, to look for you when you wouldn't look for me, to find you when you, that's amazing grace. I was lost. And not, but luckily I found my way. I was lost, but I was found. I was blind, but now I see because of him, because of what he did. And the joy of that is that, rem- that gets us out of this foolishness. That gets us out of this despair in which we are hurting others and hurting ourselves. It gets us out of this Psalm 2, nations that rage and are angry without any constructive outlet. He says, I'll I'll take you out of that and bring you to a world where there is joy, rejoicing, and gladness. Not because of anything you can do. In fact, you're powerless to do anything. But I'll send my own son to do it for you when you couldn't do it. Psalm 14 I think it's a a cool psalm in that it recognizes our weakness, but it also recognizes God's strength. I want to talk a little bit uh, before we move into a time of response about how to respond. So easily we could read this as a a nice systematic theology lesson. This is what's true of fools and how God can save us. But I don't want us to only do that. I want us to think, what do I do in light of this psalm? Right? How can I be like, not like the man in James 2 who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like? How can I respond rightly? And can I just throw out a couple of ideas? First off, I believe it's true that all of us have some repenting to do. All of us have some ways that we're saying, God, 
this part of my life is basically indistinguishable from an atheist life. Right? The way I choose my, whether it be my church or my or my friends, or my car, or my budget, or the way I choose, whatever it is I choose, I cannot distinguish how this would be any different from the way a person who didn't know you would act, right? If that's true, that needs to be repented of. We have to say, God, that is the height of foolishness. The second thing I would like us to do, and and this is just something that's on my heart, and I just want to tell you all about, i over the last couple of months, we have talked, Pastor Johnny and I have talked, and I've talked with Ken, and, and it's just been on my mind that I think that there has been a, a sense of foolishness that has settled on not all, but many of the younger generation, people that are my age and younger. And, and this is how I be, what I mean by that. Um, there are many of us who are Christians. Now, first off, let me explain that I don't think this is universally true, and I don't think it's only true of young people, but it just seems to be a trend that God has called Christians into a strong, committed relationship with the body in which we are sacrificially giving for each other, building relationships with each other. And I think largely for many reasons, for younger generations, my age and younger, church often is something that I come for my benefit regardless of the family ties that are there. It, church requires relatively little commitment. Church requires relatively little buy-in, right? And if I don't show up, if I want to go somewhere else, if I find a church that has, meets my needs better or whatever, I can go there because ultimately church is not about me submitting to the authority of God and his church and in relationship with each other, but about how I can have my needs met. And I, I think that that's just kind of an epidemic in our generation. So what does Psalm 14 teach me about how to deal with that? One is I want to say that this is not just an issue for people my age and younger. That this, foolishness, the idea that I don't have to submit myself to God and his church in any way, or any significant way, is bound in all of our hearts, right? All of us are wired this way. Some of us have had gifts of family and structures that have helped prevent that, but this is part, this is part of the human condition that's been there, at least since David, right? And we know since Adam. So one is I want to prevent us from any sort of they're wrong, but not us, that we had it right. Uh, the second thing I want to prevent is an idea that the ultimate goal here is just trying harder. I think that the solution that Psalm 14 presents is that the way God fixes this is by moving in the hearts of his people, right? That what we're asking for is not pull up your bootstraps and do more work here. What we're asking for is a movement of God that the salvation would come from Zion that would bring joy in the family of God, right? What I think we're asking for is not a better work ethic, but a revival, right? What I want from God is, will you show up in such a way that I, I get joy from giving myself under your authority and for your body? And so what I'm going to ask you to do as we respond here, and, and we'll stand and sing as the music team comes up, 
But I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. One is to pray and do investigation in your heart. God, what is specific areas that I need to surrender to your control? And two, I want to ask you to join me in praying that God will raise up new young leaders in this church who will give themselves for the cause of Christ and for the health of this church to carry this, this church and the church universal through another generation. That's something that God will have to do. I don't think any church growth strategy can help us here, but God can. So let's commit to praying for that. If you'll stand with me.